Well, hello everybody and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. I'm very excited to bring you today's guest. Uh, this is in part in response to a question I received from a member of the congregation. In part, it's something I've been wanting to do for a while because today I have with me Mr. Drew Dill, who is a wealth manager, a wealth advisor at the Barnson Group, which manages over four and a half billion dollars of client capital. Uh, Drew is a chartered retirement plan specialist. He's been working with the Barnson Group for a number of years and has wide and deep experience in the financial industry. And the issue I'd like to talk about with him today is the issue of debt. Uh, the broad subject of debt, uh, in what circumstances is indebtedness a good idea? In what circumstances is it a bad idea? Now, obviously, uh, there are biblical coordinates that will inform our conversation about this. But uh, when I received this question from a member of the congregation, and it was a kind of specific question about a particular kind of investment, I thought, yeah, this is one sub-point in a whole domain of Christian discipleship where we as Christians could really benefit from hearing from a Christian financial advisor with the expertise and experience of Drew Dill. So, Drew, thank you very much indeed for being with us today. Yep, glad to be here. Thanks, Steve. Um, give us a couple of sentences just so we can get to know you a little bit better. Tell us about yourself and, and your work experience and family and so on and so forth. Yeah, I've uh, been in the financial industry for over a decade. Uh, most of that was with uh, a major national bank um, for about nine or ten years. And providentially, I had a great friend of mine who worked for a small firm called Bonson Group, uh, which... Uh, he said, I think he could be a good fit and uh, providentially interviewed Bonson Group and have been here as a financial advisor, by wealth advisor for three years. Um, grew up and born and raised in San Clemente and then also happened to be uh, a uh, Protestant of the Reformed variety within the Orthodox Presbyterian Church for over a decade. Uh, still a part of that church and um, happy to be here. So. Well, listen, um, it's a real pleasure to speak with you, and um, uh, I'm uh, looking forward to hearing your, your wisdom. Um, so let's just jump straight in, and um, as we're going through, I'm going to be conscious of wanting to uh, allow the biblical coordinates to set the questions alongside the kind of things that people just raise, uh, and then hearing your input as a financial specialist, as well as as a, a Christian with some experience of these things. And the first thing that often arises, especially among conservative reformed Christians, when we talk about this topic is like, well, why on earth are we talking about debt anyway? Like, doesn't the Bible just say debt is a really terrible idea? None of us should ever be in any kind of debt at all. Um, and then you've got the specific prohibition in Leviticus 25 against usury. Um, and, if, and before we jump into, I'll make a couple of comments about that text, particularly, is that a viewpoint that you've uh, encountered and how do you, how do you react to it? Yeah, I've gotten the question quite a bit from from good honest Christians who want to be faithful to the text and they, they read the prohibition. I, the, the simple answer is I would say no. There's lending is good. Uh, the, the the broader answer is saying we live in a world not only in the United States but in a global economy that is built off of lending for better or for worse, and it's completely unavoidable whether you own a treasury bond or municipal bond, um, whether, you know, you take out a loan to buy a washer or a dryer or a credit card or 
if you put money into a bank account, uh, they're taking your money and they're lending it out. So you can't avoid it. One, two, the biblical prohibition, I just think needs to be set in context. Hmm. The Leviticus, for instance, might be take on this, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it too, Steve. But my take on this would be the context of Leviticus, the context of Near Ancient East, when these when Moses is writing right the, the first five books, is most of the people were dirt poor. And you didn't have a lot of wealthy, you had a very small minority of wealthy people. You have a theocratic institution that God is setting up to be a foreshadow of the kingdom that Jesus is going to bring. And that's, so that's the theocracy of Israel. And that law, I think, A, points to the fact that Israelites need to take care of their fellow Israelites and not exploit them. To be a covenant community that is caring and nurturing and to not have very few people who have money who then lend to others who are dirt poor uh, when they need to buy basic material things like food, right? So that's kind of the context of that. You also notice there's a caveat, either it's, I think it's a Deuteronomy where it doesn't say that you can't lend money without interest. It says you can't lend money without interest to an Israelite, but to a foreigner, you can. And right. I think that there's a huge distinction to say, as, you know, Israel set up to be a foreshadow of what the church, the assembly of God, when Jesus comes and establishes it, that theocracy is to be a, a foreshadow of what the church should look like. Hmm. And so... You know, if you're at a, you know, if you're at All Saints, you, you know, and you have money, the last thing you want to do is exploit somebody to make money off of for a fellow member, right? It would be just counter, counterintuitive to the church. And so I think that there's a key foreshadowing aspect there. So Israelites need to take care of their own as the church needs to take care of their own. And there should be zero exploitation. Uh, but it says to the foreigner, you can. And so I think right. that that's a great caveat to say God said, he's not saying lending is bad. He's saying, you know, exploiting your brother or sister is bad. <laughs> Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, and and your insight into the context is precisely um, in keeping with what I want to say myself. And and it's it's actually highlighted even more sharply because the point in Leviticus twenty five is that these are loans to your poor brother, and so that again it it draws attention to this distinction that you're highlighting that socially and demographically you have a small wealthy class and lots of impoverished people, and the point is um, actually. You, you can and should lend to those who are poor and are in difficulty, but you shouldn't charge interest to them. Um, and it's the charging of interest that is to be paid by people who ought to be recipients of poverty relief. That's the problem. In other words, what Leviticus 25 is, is doing is, is presupposing a certain kind of lending for the relief of poverty and it's saying in that context, don't charge interest. What that means then is it in the broader framework, as you mentioned, Deuteronomy, of course, that presupposes other kinds of lending as well, where interest is um, legitimate. And in effect, what you're what you're doing there is uh, you're reflecting the cost of capital in the interest that you charge to someone. Is that right? Yep, I would, I would agree with that. That's exactly so, so I, I, this is something I hear your your colleague David Barnson talk about a fair bit when he's talking about um, capital structures and so on, and that the phrase cost of capital relates to the idea of interest, right? So if if um, if you're a, uh, a bank and you lend money to somebody, um, the interest that you're going to charge obviously is a market rate which is set competitively, but it does relate to the the cost of capital. Um, can you just speak to that issue, just to clarify that terminological point for us? What what do you and other economists and financial professionals mean by that phrase? 
Well, I mean, the cost of capital is, is if you were to borrow money, you know, that you can, the way I would think about it is you can look at the lowest form or the, the shortest term form of what a Fed fund rate is, which banks are lending to banks overnight, is the lowest cost of capital. And then from there, you have the one year, two year, three year, 10 year treasuries. Right. And you have a market that dictates what money, right? What money costs to borrow it. The lower the money, that, you know, the lower the interest rate that, you know, that, that is in the market, the more people will lend, the more that money gets flushed into the system. And when the cost of capital gets higher, i.e. when interest rates go up, there becomes less money supply in the economy. That's why when you have inflation, one of the tools in the Fed's tool belt is to raise the cost of capital to lower the velocity or the supply of money within the economy. Mm -hmm. And so the cost of capital is just simply whatever money is worth with its time, right? With right. risk aggressive premium, with whatever the money is worth as it gets into the economy of where we want. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, b before we jump into that um, issue itself, and because that, cause that issue of the time value of money, so to speak, that raises a really significant biblical theme, which I want to come back to. But you made another fascinating point, which I guess is obvious as soon as we think about it, but must be much more obvious to you, that being involved in an economy where lending and interest payments are involved is just unavoidable. And you said, like, even even if you just deposit money at the bank, um, you're involved in a, an economy that whereby parties are lending to each other. Can you just flesh that out for us and tell us, you know, what happens if I go down to my local bank and put $1,000 on deposit? How, how am I involved in a lending and interest payment, interest charging economy at that point? Yeah, I mean, everything that we do in, in this economy is based off of debt. We are a debt economy. It doesn't mean that it's bad. It just is. I mean, one of the, one of the things that we've seen the last couple hundred years is debt. And the uh, the amount of debt that we have, right, that goes into an economy, uh, has also helped the you know, the the again trying to trying to frame this in a way that makes it simple. I would just simply say that if a Christian says, "Hey, I want to avoid this," I would simply say it's completely unavoidable. Whether right, you put right. money in a bank account, if you deposit hundred dollars into your bank account, that hundred dollars that bank is going to take. There's a margin of it to where they can take and then they can take it and they're going to lend it out. Right? You right. still see the dollars, but it's in their, their you know, stockpile of what they call cash and then they're right. going to have that money to rent out. Right? And it's most simplistic. So even that, but if you have a credit card or if you get a mortgage or if you get a car loan or uh, you think of all of these things, right? Mm -hmm. that they're just completely unavoidable. That right, you right, right. Debt. And yeah. it's normal. And there's good debt and there's bad debt. And that's where... Right. There's nuance, there's wisdom, I mean, but everything you do as far as your clothes, the tires on your car, um, the companies that are, that you're buying from, they all have good debt on their balance sheet. Fortune 500 companies have debt on their balance sheet and they're using that debt, right? To go and do stuff within their own business to make more money and then right. to supply more goods to you and me and to everybody else. Right, right. We look at debt sometimes as Christians and say it's very negative, but I would just simply point out that debt is... Uh, help the human flourishing of the you know, last 200 years in the American economy in particular. Um, and so there's nuances to that. There's obviously over-indebtedness that uh, David and other economists talk about. But what I'm just simply saying is that debt in and of itself is not bad. Right. Um, and so there's good so we need those 
need those nuances and distinctions. It's yeah. fascinating, isn't it? Because you might easily think if I go to my bank and I say, I, I want a, I want an account that doesn't pay me any interest. So I'm not receiving any interest. I'm just going to give you a thousand dollars. You've got to look after it for me. Even in those circumstances, what's actually happening is that the bank is using the money it makes out of interest from lending your money to pay its own costs. So even, even if you don't see any of the fruit of it as the depositor, still what's going on. And it's, you know, it's fascinating. You're right. You go to Walmart, you buy uh, you know, a bag of apples or something. You're probably buying fruit that was bought with borrowed money. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Your cell phone, I mean, you think of a company like Verizon, right? Hmm. You your cell phone company, you can look up their debt and their balance sheet. They have a lot of debt in their balance sheet. And the way that their debt is structured, you can look at it and say, yeah, it's actually good debt. It's good debt. The cost of that debt is good. And then you see what they take that debt and then they go and reinvest or use it with right within their company. And it, A, it makes their shareholders money and B, it produces phones and C, right? People can communicate and, and that's all based off of, right? Verizon using debt and they're using right, it right, in, a, right. in a prudent, in a shrewd and shrewd in a positive sense way. And that's what every economy, every fortune 500 company, uh, you know, within the SMB is, is leveraged to some extent. And the question becomes, how do you use it? What are the terms? And and the way that they're obviously trying to use it is to say, we want to take this money and then make more off of it than what we're paying in interest and reinvest it in the company, which then produces goods to fellows like you and I. Right, right. Well, let's just jump into some of those distinctions then that help us to uh, distinguish between good debt and bad debt. And what, one of the things that strikes me, uh, if, you, if you read the book of Proverbs uh, in particular, that you have this constant underlying awareness of a get rich quick uh, mentality. So, I mean, I was just reading through the Proverbs again in preparation for talking with you. And so Proverbs 21, five, the plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. And it's just fascinating. I mean, you've got other, other texts in the same context where the, um, the hastiness to make money, the get rich quick attitude, uh, which is short term, and and doesn't recognize that what actually needs to be done is long-term labor to build capital in contrast with something like I mean, you mentioned a company verizon but let's not pick them as an example just pick any any company that, that says well uh, if we if we borrow a certain amount of money now we think that we by working hard and intelligently and wisely can generate a higher return on this capital than we're paying in interest to the lender. So the lender is happy because he's getting a fairly secure investment, maybe four or 5% over a couple of years. Uh, the, the company itself is happy because they've got the capital, they can expand more rapidly. And maybe they can generate a 10 or 15% return, which goes to their shareholders, their employees, it benefits their customers and so on. So do, does that give you a framework as a financial professional for distinguishing between some kinds of bad lending or bad borrowing and other kinds of good lending, good borrowing. Talk to us about the kind of criteria that you would use in advising people or advising companies in that space. Yeah, so I'll even break it down from companies to just people, right? right? Let's say like, like a household. So you're a, 
you're a 25 year old and you listed a Dave Ramsey and he tells you to pay off all debt, right? First and foremost, because all debt's bad. Just to use an example, it's not enough on Dave Ramsey at all. Mm -hmm. This is the stereotype of kind of what we're talking about. But when you were 25, you got a mortgage in, you know, three years ago and you locked in a two and a quarter percent 30 year fix, right? Right, right. The worst thing that that person could do is pay off their debt quicker. Right. Why? Because they can take any of the excess money that you were going to tip the principal to your mortgage and you can put it in a money market account and you'll double it, right? Your mortgage is paying two and a quarter, it's fixed. And then you put the money that you would have taken to pay off additional principal of the mortgage, but in the money market, it's making five. You have what we call a positive arbitrage of two and a half percent. That is wisdom. This is just, it's just being wise of saying, okay, this structure of my debt on the two and a quarter percent 30 year fix is a great structure. I, I, I won here. I'm going to make the minimum payments faithfully to the bank on the terms that I agreed upon. The loser in this is the bank. They want you to make principal payments. They want this loan off their balance sheet because they want to take that and then they want to have that money reinvested at seven and eight percent what current rates are now. So the bank is the loser in this situation. The winner is the person who has the contract and which you have a 30 year fix. Hmm. But you, the simple thing is this is what businesses do, and what your example is you can just go to a more complex level of a horizon or you can just any Fortune 500 company. It's the same principle. I have this agreement, this contract. Here's my rate, and then what, what are current rates? What's the current environment doing? And if you can take that in a safe investment, even just as a simple example, and make two and a half, three percent, that would be wisdom and prudence. Rather, right. it would be foolish to, to pay it off. Your your point with the proverbs thing of the hasty investments, uh, I think of things like current day would be like crypto as an example of that, or what we call fear of missing out. Uh, this this kind of momentum driven. Uh, well, why do you want to do it? Well, because my friend did it and he made $20,000 and I, I want to, I want to be a part of, you know, and do something like that. So you're trying to hastily gain and make money off a quick, you know, a quick, uh, interval, uh, Proverbs is right. That's, it's unwise. It's foolish. Um, you right. could do well, uh, and you could get really hurt and the norm is that people normally get hurt in things like this. Right. Um, and so, yeah. No, it's, it's interesting. Cause your example of the mortgage, uh, where the guy has, you know, been uh, blessed enough to be able to lock in a, a rate under three uh, percent, and now we're in a, a much higher interest rate environment. It strikes me there's at least two things that are presupposed in that situation that make it a good thing. And the first is that that is a a loan that's backed by an asset that is worth more than the than the debt, right? So uh, I've heard David say this, and I know it's something that you've uh, a view you shared that we we should be thinking of a a home, a property as a place to live and, and not primarily as an investment. And so it foregrounds the fact that the, uh, you've got bricks and mortar there, which secures the debt. And that, that makes it different from, let's say, if you just went out and borrowed a sum of money at 5%, hoping that you'd be able to make seven and a half, where you've got no uh, asset to back it. And it'd be interesting to hear your reflections on that distinction. The other thing, of course, that's obvious is that uh, somewhere along the line, you must be making some money by working, presumably, to make the payments. In other words, the, the fact that you'd advise somebody to keep their, let's say, $200,000 mortgage does not mean you'd advise the same person to keep a $3 million mortgage, right? If they've got a home which is uh, huge, bigger than they need, 
the mortgage payments are bigger than they can afford, right? They made a mistake in purchasing that, right? So servicing the debt is something that their current work doesn't allow them to do. Yeah. Yeah. When you bring up Proverbs in the tension that the Bible has to say that there's good loans and there's bad loans, there's, right. there's good debt and there's bad debt. We can get into all these nuances, which is good. What, what the scriptures are saying is that the particulars matter. The right. particulars matter, the terms of the debt, um, you know, uh, how you service the debt, how much money you make, your balance sheet should be a part of this. Um, and so, and, and I think that's the, the tension here to of saying, yeah, like there's, there's good debt and there's bad debt. To your example, if you have somebody who has a large home and they can't service the debt um, because they jumped into something that they couldn't afford, which would be in real reality, be harder to do in this environment been easier to do in 2004 as an example, right. which you know, right, have just stated loans and you can kind of do that. But you see the human nature, what happened in 2004, you see human nature on display of human beings borrowing more, right? Before the 2007 and eight financial crisis that we had. What, why was that, right? You have a bunch of borrowers, people who go out and get loans at that time because they wanted the house, they wanted to, you know, they, they, they wanted the asset, but they couldn't actually service the debt. Hmm. You had a bunch of people doing that simultaneously through over years, and it plunged our economy into a major crisis. Both the banks, but also the borrowers. People forget the borrowers are also to blame. The, the folks who are going out, you know, getting right. million dollar loans when they're when they're making thirty five thousand dollars a year. Uh, there, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's a foolishness that's there. Hmm. And so, yeah, you have to be able to service the debt. That would be bad debt. And so, understanding. You know, your job, your vocation, your trajectory, how secure is your job? All those things I think should be a part of your thought process when getting debt and then saying, how can I service it? What does my income look like? How much of this debt is a part of my actual cash flow? Right. Mm -hmm. So it's normal now for somebody to get a mortgage and that mortgage be 45% of the value of their paycheck a month. Oh, wow. It's really high. And so, right. So, if you get a loan, the underwriting for a mortgage loan right now will sit, typically say they want your TTI, your, your debt to income, to be at 45%. 45% of what your cash flow is. It's really, really high. Right. Um, and so the bank will approve it. Should the Christian do it, right? Well, no, the Christian, I would say, shouldn't do it, even if you can get approved there. But the Christian should do it if you can get approved there because you're on a trajectory of making more incrementally you know, year after year, you know that and that's secure. You're making a, an informed risk, you know, you know decision. Right. I'm saying, yeah, I'll do this now. It'll be tight for a couple of years, but, you know, I'm going to, you know, work my way up here and it's real realistic. Well, then that's, again, this is where the Proverbs would, and you know, I think the Psalms would say, there's wisdom here, right? And there's right. no black and white. There's no, if it's 35%, then do it, pull the trigger. And if it's 45%, then don't do it, don't pull the trigger. Right. There are other variables to be had in there. So, and it's, it's striking as well, just thinking about that trying to imagine myself being 23 years old again and um you could easily imagine couldn't you saying to somebody look maybe your income will increase quick enough to make this large payment work in two or three years time but there's another way isn't there there's a there's a way of saying look uh, why don't you um live off rice and beans in the cheapest place you can find for two or three years and just save every penny you earn work two jobs and yeah. just just learn the biblical virtue of patience, because yeah. what you're then doing is you're guarding yourself against the psychological and actually the spiritual, really, risk of being driven by greed and 
that kind of hasty to get rich rather than being willing to be patient and uh, live in a modest way for a, a long period of time so that you can then make a more prudent investment. And then suddenly you're not at 45% debt to income, you're down at 30 because you've actually put a bigger down payment down. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. You, you mentioned um, the dreaded FOMO, fear of missing out. And um, obviously this is a huge driver of investor behavior and I would love to hear you talk about that. I'm, I'm not asking you to tell any particular specific stories, but um, in the crypto space, but I guess also it must be in the kind of the whole hot stocks industry. People see an advert on Facebook or a video on YouTube where a guy's saying, look, I've got, um, I've got uh, one stock tip, which is the only thing you need to get rich and just sign up here for my um, uh proven method and then he shows you some screenshot with a bunch of numbers on it that shows you how much he made last month um <laughs> and 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 people feel like oh if if he's done it i could do it or they've got a friend at work who says well, I, look i've got in on this scheme and it's not it's not really a registered investment but it's look look at the returns like it's, it's promising 30 percent a year and that there's something in the human spirit, isn't there, that that doesn't want to miss out on what looks like a great opportunity. So there's that fear of missing out. Um, talk to us about that. And and I'll try and avoid having you shed a tear and holding your head in your hands over the investor behavior issue, because that must be a lot of what you spend your time trying to manage. No, I, I think it's I, I'm glad that you brought it up. And, I, you know, you, you've heard me talk about this, you know, offline and and it's no secret, I, I honestly think that the worst um, enemy of an investor is our human nature. And now the audience listening to this podcast are all good Calvinists. So, you know, we're all, um, you know, we're all understanding uh, and of the doctrines of original sin and total depravity. Um, and we're the only people who are proud of that too, by the way, which is, you know, real weird. But, <laughs> but as talking to a bunch of Calvinists, as myself, or, or as I myself am, and I know you are, it is, it is intuitively and empirically a, a fact. Just being in this world of managing client capital and managing all, the worst enemy to an investor is human nature. And a huge part of that is what you just described, right? So greed sets in this, you know, my friend uh, invested in crypto and he has, you know, he did 20, you know, $20 turned into, you know, 20,000. Then you think, my goodness, I want to do that. It seems easy. So it's this appeal to immediate gratification. So as Calvinists, people who understand original sin, as Luther says, we're bent in on ourselves. Mm. We, we are prone to immediate gratification. We are prone to leaving the mandate of uh, working diligently and putting our nose to the ground and faithfully going and cultivating and doing stuff because we want to abdicate our responsibility as being hard workers and serving our neighbors through the vocation of work. We want to stray away from those things because we're just sinners, all of us. I mean, it's a, right? So all of that intuitively makes sense. When I got this profession, I was like, wow, um, you know, God's really, really right about our, our behavior. And then you see it when money is on the line, you really see it kind of come out. And so all the things that we think about, greed, uh, fear of missing out, uh, all of those things are intuitively true. And intuitively, obviously, you can give a million examples. So David would give the dot-com crash. Um, that's an example. The Beanie Babies craze, the 1990s. Beanie Babies, you know, selling for astronomical amounts of money. And people say, 
well, you know, I sold it for this much. It's, you know, it's good. And, and same thing with crypto. I bought it for this much and I'm selling it for this much. And so just because you buy something or somebody buys an asset and then they can sell it for more, as you said, when somebody sees that it's easy, it's immediate gratification, that should be signaling red flags right. for us. If we're good with Calvinists and saying, this is, doesn't make sense, you know. Hmm. I had a friend who once said the grass is greener on the other side because it's fertilized with BS. He used the real word, but it's yes. true. Yeah. And, and so this idea here um, of fear of missing out, if you have an investment that is immediate, if you have promised returns without discussing the real trade-offs that are inherent in the investment, uh, all of those should be red flags and you should run into them. Right. Um, you, you really should never do it. And so... Fear of missing out is is huge. Human nature is the worst enemy of an investor. And uh, jumping into things that sound too good to be true, just know that they're always pretty much too good to be true. Um, and so I can give particular examples of, again, the crypto thing, I think is a great current example. Because mm. what is it? It's nothing. It's literally nothing. There's, there's nothing inherent in crypto. There's no inherent asset of it. It just doesn't, it's, it's, I'm going to buy it on the assumption that somebody else is going to buy it for a higher price. And that is what you call a Ponzi scheme, or that is what you call a, uh, an immediate gratification. No, it's Ponzi scheme. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to buy it because I think somebody else will buy it at a higher price. Well, why should they buy it at a higher price? Because everybody doesn't want to miss out. And we have all these people jumping in and not wanting to miss out, and they keep buying it for a higher price. It's called the greater fool's theory. It's a real thing. Right, we call this the greater fool's theory. I'm going to buy an investment because somebody else is going to buy it at a higher price. And you would say, "Well, why are they going to buy it at a higher price?" Because we created this 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 fear of missing out of people saying, "Well, I want to jump in. I want to jump in. I can get in the early stages of this and make money. Then I'll jump out and sell it to somebody else at a higher price, and I'll make my money, and then and then it's going to go on." So people A can make money from it. Uh, typically, it's the exception, not the norm. And then most people, once that bubble pops, they're going to get their faces ripped off and they're going to get hurt. And people are going to feel that. And yeah. you see it with the Beanie Babies craze, the, the dot com crash yeah. in the early 2000s. Uh, and history is ripe with these examples. For There's a great book um, that is it's called The Extraordinary uh, Delusions of the Popular Opinion by Charles Something. I'll give you the thing, put it in your show notes. Yeah, yeah. One of your favorite books, but it's an example. It's like 300 years of just this type of stuff. Here's an extraordinary delusions and the madness of crowds or something. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I want to just put a footnote in here because the whole crypto space has been um, populated, among others, by reformed Christians. And I think there's, a, there's an additional factor that pushes people towards this. Um, in contradistinction from the theological convictions that ought to drive us away from it, which you mentioned, um, I think there is a contrarian and um, anti-establishment streak in many Reformed Christians. We, we tend to be mistrustful of uh, elite and establishment solutions to things. And, and so for an, an example of that would be fiat currency. Um, there is a uh, I think justifiable to some degree uh, frustration with the the, de the devaluation of our currency over many decades, and so crypto sells itself in part as an alternative to that, which raises this question of of 
what the crypto advocates actually say it's good for. I was fascinated. This is the footnote, really. Um, David had a podcast on his, his Capital Record podcast recently where he interviewed a guy, I can't remember who it was, but he'd just written a book about crypto uh, and Bitcoin and so on. And it was it was really intriguing to me because I'd heard a lot of people making the case for what cryptocurrencies are good for. So obviously, they're not a physical thing. There's no asset there. But, oh, they're a, they're a safeguard against government interference, or they are a store of value, or they are a medium of exchange in contexts where other media of exchange can't, can't function. And I just want to encourage anybody who's got those questions to check out the Capital Record podcast with David. It's a couple of weeks old now, this particular episode, because there is more to say in that space. And I know you've got a lot more you could say, but I want to keep us on track on the debt. Yeah. Thing. I just have a feeling yeah. that maybe we should have another yeah. podcast and you should talk to us about crypto, but but not, <laughs> not today. Um, talk to us about um, student loans. Let, let, me, let me set the stage for this by saying, obviously, if, if we piece together what you've said so far, uh, clearly, there's such a thing as good debt and there's such a thing as bad debt. One of the characteristics of uh, bad debt is that you're taking on uh, a level of indebtedness that you've got no realistic means of paying back. Or as you look to the future and try and weight the probabilities of the various outcomes, the realistic likelihood of you being able to uh, pay this back and make a return on the investment that makes the indebtedness worthwhile is really low. Whereas if you've got a a situation where you know you're taking on a manageable amount of debt and there's a high probability of that allowing you to generate a future income stream which pays back the debt and then generates more profit on top of that that's that's good debt right so student loans um good debt or bad debt or potentially both talk to us about that yeah i would the, the one word answer i'd say it depends and, and again yeah. here's this tension there's good debt and there's bad debt so we've established that right it's not that debt is bad is the structure of the terms and the nuances. So I'll give you an example of good and an example of bad and, and then push back or, or ask questions from there. But I'd say, you know, you're going to, you have a Jane Doe who's going to New St. Andrews. We use that as an example. You're going to New St. Like Andrews. purely random example, right? Just a random example, yeah. Uh, one that your audience won't understand. You have Jane Doe who goes to uh, New St. Andrews. She uh, is desiring to be a, a wife of someone that she doesn't know yet, right? So the husband's to be a German. And she wants to go to New St. Andrews because New St. Andrews is going to explore the truth, the good, and the beautiful. The end of education for the sake of education is why she's going. All of those things I'd say, noble, I love it. It's chef's kiss, like, great. But she doesn't have the means to pay for it. Let's just pretend to New St. Andrews is 100,000 years. Very affordable, so it's not, but we're just going to pretend it is. Or it's like a private viola, it's 40,000 years. If that was the case and her parents couldn't afford it, she doesn't have the capital, I would say, don't do it. Don't do it. You yourself are going to go into a location that is noble, true, and good, and beautiful, and being a homemaker for a husband who you don't know whose income is going to be. Um, I, would, I would refrain. If you can't afford it now, I would be very hesitant in that situation, right, to, to take out a hundred and some odd thousand dollars of debt. Right. Um, with a bunch of unknowns, but then you go John Doe, who is, is you know, example two, who wants to go to a trade school to be an electrician. Mm -hmm. It's going to cost him, let's say, a hundred thousand 
total, right? 150 grand total. I don't know what it costs for a trade. Make it up. But we know that John Doe as an electrician is going to do very well within year one, two, and three. It's going to probably make it 80,000, 100,000, and then, you know, potentially because it's a niche trade, he's going to start making good money right away. And then he has the, the upside on that. So, you know, almost unlimited, it seems. He can go into his own vocation, start his own business, and so forth. Good debt. Mm-hmm. Smart. You know, because it's so they, here's where the nuances of all that are just so important. Like, right. You know, right. It, and so I am always perplexed, you know, the wisdom literature of Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, um, is always, it's never black and white. It, it's just not because east of Eden, you know, we live in a really, really sinful and complex uh, world. And it just takes a lot of wisdom to navigate. The scriptures are really clear about that. And... That wisdom starts with the beginning of fear of God and, and, and then also, right, uh, walking and understanding and leaning on elderly people, the church, and all these resources that are given right. for that. But experience is a big part of that, and there's no black and whites. The right. older I get, the more I realize there's no clear, you know, it's, it's, there's, the details matter. Yeah, that's fascinating because, uh, and it's kind of reassuring, Drew, we've got to tell you, because it, it mirrors the kind of thought process that we've been going through with our children um, and that many other Christian parents go through with their kids. Now, as it happens, so I think you know this, obviously you know this, we know each other quite well. Um, I have a son who's uh, 20, a, a daughter who's 18, and a daughter who's 16. The older two are, are at college. Um, they're both doing STEM subjects, um, the oldest two. Um, and on the face of it, you think, okay, so um, that's, a, that's a good investment of their time. Also, as it happens, they've not needed to borrow at the present time in order to uh, attend because they've done really well. They've got some scholarships. Um, we'd saved a little. We're able to help them out with that. And they're also working to get their way through it. Um, now, but at the same time, it's still a cost. Like if college was free, it's still costing you the lost income. Like Ben could have been working for two or three years by now doing all kinds of different things. Um, uh, whether here in the US or um, back in the UK, um, where as uh, all our listeners can tell probably that that's where we're originally from, um, there's all, any number of different uh, ways that he could have been earning money. And what people often don't see is the money they don't make. And the reason they don't see it is precisely because they don't make it. So there are all these costs loaded into the, the cost of a, a college education or a trade school. And then you layer on top of that the the different anticipated outcomes and the uncertainty in those outcomes. And it's just fascinating, the two examples you picked, Jane and John. Obviously, there's uncertainty in both. You know, John might get injured and never be able to work in his trade. Um, Jane might get married very quickly to somebody who's very wealthy, who could easily pay back the money that she'd uh, spent on his behalf before meeting him. Or she might yeah. not get married for 10 years and or 15 years or never at all. And the question then becomes how you navigate the decisions you've got to make now in relation to the future, which is uncertain. Um, yeah. And it's, it's this issue of indebtedness is one layer of that complexity. And so we've the kind of path that we've taken is to try and say, OK, you, you, we don't know what the future holds for any of our kids. We, we know what their aspirations are, and we've talked to them about that. And I've talked about this with other people and their children as well. But what 
we want to encourage them to try and do is try to make decisions in the present which will not turn out to be disastrous regardless of what the future holds. So you're trying to make anti-fragile decisions, in other words. You don't know the future, but, you know, let's imagine the, the, the Jane Doe situation. If you've got a young lady who's, uh, if it turns out she's going to get married and she gets halfway or the whole way through a degree, but doesn't incur a huge amount of debt, even if she's missed out on some earnings, nonetheless, that's, that's not a disastrous outcome. That's a good outcome because there are some positives from the degree. If she doesn't get married for 10, 15, 20 years, that's also a good outcome. She's got some training and so on and so forth. Yep. What you don't want to be doing is putting yourself in the position of um, six-figure debt and just sitting waiting for a preferably wealthy Mr. Wright to walk into the coffee shop where you're working. Because yeah. Then you're in a fragile position. Yeah. I can give a even more specific example I think is more common. Take a teacher, noble and, and good profession, yeah, you you see people who go and they get a undergrad and sometimes masters and they rack up forty to seventy thousand in debt, and you know that your vocation is going to pay you thirty five to sixty thousand a year. Mm. You know that, yeah. And so again, good noble profession, but is it worth? And that's again, it's not a hard stop, right? I'm not saying no. I'm just simply saying like that's one where you look at the indebtedness, and then you know what your income is going to be as a teacher. And you look at that and say, is that really prudent? Is that really wise right, to take right. out that much debt to go and, and work in a vocation of making 60000 a year to where servicing that debt is going to be somewhere around 20% of your income? Right. And, it, and, it, and it's a tough thing, isn't it? Because the truth is, for, for a lot of people, the math is not easy. I mean, for someone in your position with the experience you've got and and certainly for someone who's got a STEM background, the math is not difficult if you think to do it. But for a lot of people, just working out what will be the actual long-term cost of incurring a certain level of debt um, alongside um, foregone income, um, like potential future changes in interest rates and so on and so forth, that's actually not an easy piece of math to do. And presumably that's why people would be wise to get financial advice if they're in the kind of position to recognize that they're, they're in a position of uncertainty and to seek advice, right? Yeah, agree. Um, I want to talk yeah. about a couple of other um, issues. In, in a moment, I want to come to a particular investment philosophy that you espouse. And, and you didn't know that I was going to ask you about this before you came on. And so there's, you know, in, in no sense is, is this Drew Dill um, feeding uh, us unsolicited uh, uh, advertisements for his firm. Uh, what it really is, is me saying in a moment, I'll say, uh, asking you to describe what you actually advise people to do and the kind of approach you take to investments. But before we do that, I want to talk about something which is just another question that comes up in conversation uh, with congregants here. And it's the issue of leveraged investments. Uh, and let's take a very, very a stark example of this. Imagine somebody in his mid twenties or early twenties, and he sees people making money out of uh, capital that they've earned and that they're then putting to work in some productive way. And somebody shows up with a scheme that says you don't need any startup capital. Uh, what you can do is something, and and it, what it amounts to in the end is either explicit or implicitly leveraged, you're borrowing from somebody in order to put money into 
normally their investment. Can you talk about this kind of approach to investing and, and what you think of it? Good, bad, terrible, what the warning signs are and so on? Yeah, and I just want to make sure I got my terms correct because le- when I hear leverage investing, you can go, you know, you have a leveraged uh, S&P 500 with a two-to-one ratio, which right. means whatever the S&P does, you juice the returns by double. That's not what you're talking about here. You're asking correct. for somebody who comes to John Doe who's 20 something years old and they can say, Hey, John, I got this great investment idea. You don't have any skin in the game. You don't need to put any skin of your capital in. Um, we're going to give you money and let you borrow our money so that you can make an investment and then you can repay us back. Is that right. what you're saying? Um, yeah. I mean, you could talk about the um, two to one S and P trackers if you want, because I know you've done the math on that and um, have some fairly sharp opinions about them. Do you want to do that first? And then we'll talk about the, the leveraged investment well, scheme. I'll, I'll go with the leverage investment scheme first. I, I just want to make sure we weren't talking about the, the, the leveraged uh, ETF thing. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, but I, I'll jump to, to, to the one that you had first. Yes. It, for something like that, A, again, if it sounds too good to be true, it, it just is. B, if somebody's asking you not to put skin in the game um, and then they're giving you money, you have skin in the game because they're giving you money and you have to repay that. And they're doing it for an economic reason. Um, and so right away, I'd say, not smart, not smart. Don't do that. Don't take somebody else's money um, when they're promising you, right, that you're going to do fine. You're going to make money. That was, I think, the, the situation. Right. You're going to take somebody's borrowed money. So you're borrowing money and then you're going to go invest that money and then you're going to get the returns and then, and then give the difference back to the person in principle when it's interesting part. You know, when people think of like the great financial crisis, the depression in the twenties, you know, we have margin lines. You can kind of borrow from a brokerage account and it's the same idea. There's, there's people who want to borrow money and then they'll invest it. You have a margin line. There's good and bad ways of doing that. And to say though, in this case, that person would be a hundred percent margin already because they have no skin in the game. If you follow. So you have, you have nothing. You're just taking 100% borrowed money and then you're going investing it. What happens is that you have the potential to invest it in something and let's say it blows up. Right. Now that investment blows up and then you owe this person whatever they borrowed or gave you plus whatever interest and so forth. It's a very bad idea in that case. Right, right, right. Um, you mentioned leveraged ETFs. Um, so just to uh, get people up to speed with this. So an ETF exchange traded fund, it's a way of buying a basket of stocks that tracks normally an index or a sector, or a, a, a part of a, a group of companies, perhaps. And normally, what happens is you buy this bunch of stocks, and as they all go up, your fund goes up in line with them or it goes down in line with them. So what's a leveraged ETF? And uh, tell us what you think about them. Yeah, it's when they borrow money uh, and they double down for returns. This is essentially what you're doing. You're taking leveraged money, money, additional, we're not just buying the stock, but you're borrowing money to double down on those returns. And so you get double the risk, uh, double the reward, or double the loss. And so that's the easiest way of thinking about it. And inherently, with just any investment, right, understanding that there's no free lunch, as somebody once said. Um, there's a risk premium that doubles in something like that. And the index is going to be the key of whatever you're investing in. So you have leverage S&P 500 indexes, which essentially you're 
you're buying the S&P and then you're doubling down on it by leveraging the S&P with borrowed capital. Ergo, double the returns, double the losses um, when they're there. So, Right. I'm just trying to remember how the math works because if you buy a fund, if you buy a standard uh, ETF tracking the S&P 500 or the uh, NASDAQ or whatever, if the fund goes up by 1% and then comes down to where it was before, so it goes from, let's say, 100, 101, back down to 100, the normal ETF should end up where it started from. But a leveraged ETF will actually end up lower. Is that correct? Yeah, and I believe, I actually don't know, and this is, this is I'll confess my ignorance, I don't even know the math on hand because we don't do it at right. all. So I'm so far away from the space. I don't know the math off the back of my hand. Um, and so I'm not going to attempt to do it because I'll make myself look like a fool. Um, <laughs> yeah. wrong. So I'll, I'll, I'll divert from the math of it, but the idea mm. of the concept, that's, that's what it is. Right. Okay. Borrowing okay. and the losses are far more extreme. That I do. Right. So, yeah. 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 Well, um, let's move on. And this is the final subject I really want to talk about because, so we've talked about loans. Um, I mean, we've not talked about credit cards, but I guess, uh, that sort of stands to reason that if, if it's the easiest money you can get hold of as a borrower, it's the, the money you're going to be paying most for. So uh, have a credit card, but pay it off every month. Is, would that be your advice? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't recommend credit card debt is debt. You don't want to hold. Right. It's, right, it's, right. It's always bad debt. You can use credit cards to pay it off for wars and things like that. And again, I don't think Christians should have any sort of allergy to that. It's like, no, no, no. If you have a credit card and you want to, you know, you put $2,000 of expenses a month because you're just going to pay that off in cash at the end of the month. Right. You're not paying any interest. You're paying no interest. Maybe it takes 30 or 25 days after you make a charge for the interest to start accruing on the debt, on the credit card. Pay it off at the end of the month. You don't pay interest. You give rewards points. That's prudence. That's just being true to get into good way, right? Just right. being wise. Um, the, now, the reason that credit cards do what they do and offer points, you and I know, is because credit card companies and banks understand human nature better than some Calvinists. Right. They know that if they offer the population short-term immediate cash flow, that a lot of the population is going to over-leverage themselves because they want whatever it is that they want, and they want it now, and they don't have it with their cash flow, so they're going to borrow the credit card. Mm. So uh, Christians and non-Christians are susceptible to this, and that's where it's it's like, no, that's that would be, don't do that. Don't borrow what you cannot afford. Yes. There's, there, there's exceptions, there's nuances, I get it. Which just as a general reason or rule of thumb, that that's that's what they're doing. And credit card companies do this. They offer point systems because the bulk of people borrow more and they hold balances and they're paying exorbitant interest rates, which is not uh, which is not a, a blast on the banks. The banks have risk to it because it's an unsecured debt. There's nothing to it. If you don't pay it, it just goes bad, you get a bad credit score, and there's nothing you can do, nothing to you know, repossess. But it's it's them. It's them understanding human nature and what people do. And I think that's the, a, a fascinating point is that, you know, our secular hmm. uh, neighbors understand this very well. Yes. Yeah. So what should we do then? I, I, and, and be as explicit as you like. We have here a congregation of several hundred people, including um, a large number of young families and a, a bunch of families with, with teenage children and then older families, uh, some single people or some young folks growing up, I would love for them not just to be working hard and seeking to save and provide for their families and to be generous to others. I'd love for them also to have an idea of 
some principles that should govern their investment. I'd, I'd love for them to be godly and wise and hardworking and wealthy. There's no, there's nothing bad about that. Uh, and just imagine for a second that you were a wealth manager uh, for somebody like that. It was quite easy for you to imagine. Um, can you describe in outline the kind of approach you take to selecting investments in particular? Uh, I'm not asking you to recommend a particular portfolio because obviously everything's personalized, but talk to us about the approach to investment that you guys at the Barnton Group embrace. Yeah. So I, we're, we're dividend growth investors. That's the kind of the cornerstone uh, of, of how we allocate um, and how we think of investing. So we're, from a philosophical standpoint, we invest in companies, so stocks that pay dividends and more importantly, to grow their dividends year over year. You can kind of think about everything we've been talking about, human nature, speculation, FOMO, uh, get rich quick schemes. This is like the antithesis to that. This is not a get rich, a get rich quick scheme. Doesn't mean that it's it's a, a quote unquote conservative investment. Doesn't mean that it's not going to grow a lot. It's not. Doesn't mean any of that. It's just saying the the philosophy embedded in itself is is geared for long term gratification, right? Longer term faithfulness, steady at the wheel, right? Uh, type longer time horizons, not invest here and then you know you're trying to pop a 20 percent return at the end of the year it's not what it's going for right and so the idea is that you invest in companies that pay a dividend which is you buy a stock and some stocks not all stocks do this but some stocks will pay if you own a stock will pay you a cash flow of dividends you can own a stock for a dollar there's some stocks will pay five percent five cents every year on that one dollar five percent yield right hmm. of the stock in this case we want to buy companies that are paying that five cent dividend. This is just an easy example of the dollar. So 5% yield, just making this up. And then we want the next year that five cents to turn into seven and eight cents and nine cents. We want that dividend to grow. We think that if that grows, the price of the stock over time right, will also grow. Right. right. And if you think of the investment philosophy of why we like that, there's, there's a lot of reasons why, but speaking to the audience that we're speaking to now, we think of, Things like Enron and scandals all throughout financial history, even in big Fortune 500 companies. I think, you know, you remember Enron was what, 15, 16, was it almost 20 years ago? Where you have this major company, was publicly traded, uh, go bankrupt because they were lying about their balance sheets. Hmm. They literally lied about how much money they're making, they lied about everything. And a lot of people got hurt if the company went bankrupt. Well, how do you avoid something like that? Well, if they were paying a dividend uh, and growing a dividend, um, well, they wouldn't have been able to do that because they were lying about their balance sheets. But companies that are actually paying a dividend and growing a dividend, they can't lie about their balance sheets because they're paying shareholders here and now every quarter right. a cash flow. That's one reason. So I'm speaking to Calvinists who are like, we're skeptical of businesses and, right. and big corporate greed. One of the ways to keep them in check is to say, well, I want you to pay me something now for my current stock investment. Right, right. Well, that's what we're saying there. And so as a philosophy, we, we, we want companies that are growing revenues. They're building real products that go out and actually help people from cancer uh, research to uh, your Cheerios in the morning, to diapers, to think of real, to oil, to energy, all of these things that produce good things for our human brothers and sisters, Christians and non-Christians alike. 
that promote human flourishing. They actually produce tangible goods. They get money for those goods, and then their revenues grow, right? Which means their earnings and their revenues grow ultimately. And then they repay those revenues and earnings to people like myself and my investors through the form of a dividend. So you get this, can't lie on your balance sheet, and then we're not speculating. We're, we're literally going off of earnings and cash flows and bottom-up type investing. And so, again, it's the antithesis of everything we've been talking about on the on the phone right. side. So, right. And I'll elaborate more. I, I kind of uh, I feel like shotgun spring. Yeah, no, it's, it's really helpful. It's really helpful. It's, it's striking because you could parse it theologically and, and just imagine yourself as an investor, um, you know, 25, 30, 35 years old. Uh, you've, you're saving some money every month from your paycheck and you want to invest it in a company that shares your values and is likely to make a return in the long term. So how do you do that? And it, it strikes me that one way of parsing what you said is that um, finding companies that do what you've described is a way of ensuring that the management's competence and goals aligns with yours. So they, they can't pay a sustainable growing dividend over time unless they are working hard to make real products and actually committed to um, returning that to the owners of the company, the shareholders, and they're not lying about it. I mean, and this is the thing, if, if in, a sec, in a sense, we want to encourage people to be extremely suspicious of everybody. So how do you overcome that suspicion? Well, you say, well, you prove to me that you're making money by giving me a share of it. That's exactly right. Right. And well said too, because you elaborated on a point I didn't hit on, and I think it's it's absolutely prudent. Is that you brought up the fact that this philosophy of if you have you know ABC company that's paying and growing a dividend, it keeps the management and the board very disciplined. Mm. It keeps them accountable. It doesn't just keep them accountable from an honesty on the balance sheet thing. That's check one, and that's just a fact that you have to put your money over your mouth as to pay shareholders on a quarterly basis. But it also keeps them disciplined by staying in their lane and producing what they're really good at. It prevents them typically from going and buying stuff and then leveraging out, right? To 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 go and you know, like AT and T is a great example when they bought it. It was Time Warner. You know, the telecommunications company buys a, a, a TV streaming right thing. It's kind of right. out of your lane. When to to lever up and to go do that? Those are things that right are, are things that you. Uh, if you're paying and growing the dividend, uh, now you're putting a lot of stress because now you have to go and execute on a whole different line of business, a whole different competency. It can be done. We're just giving this as an example and saying, well, that's 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 going to be hard to grow and sustain a dividend. And by the way, that company didn't grow and sustain a dividend after they did that merger. Uh, mm -hmm. They cut it uh, 18 or 20 months after it. And, but that's a, exactly the point is if you're growing and paying a dividend, from a management standpoint, uh, it keeps them in check and it keeps them disciplined from right. going and buying and doing foolish things with the additional revenues yes. uh, that, their, uh, that their companies are having. Yeah, yeah. Drew, you've been very generous with your time and uh, very insightful with all your comments. I'm very grateful. I want to thank you on behalf of the congregation here. Uh, just before I let you go, I wonder if you could point us to some resources that people could look at if they wanted to read more. I mean, particularly about um, where we ended up, the whole um, investment strategy piece, because that's right at the heart of your uh, your line of work. It would be remiss of me to let you go without recommending stuff. It, what what would you encourage people to read or where would you encourage people to go if they wanted to find out more about what you've been saying? 
Yeah, I think the, the greatest place to start is is the, the owner and founder of our company, David Bunsen's uh, case for dividend growth that will elaborate the investment philosophy uh, that we think is proven uh, for investors. So I'd be remiss to, to not recommend David's book. And I would say all of David's books, but that one particularly for an investment thing or for an investment standpoint. From the banking in the, 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 the loan stuff, I think a great book, if, if people are really interested in a congregation saying, I want to know more about why, you know, Pastor Steve and, and Drew think that that um, leverage is good and there's good leverage and bad leverage and, and how the church has thought about this for a long time. A guy named Samuel Gray wrote a book called uh, For God and Profit, How Banking and Finance Can Serve the Common Good. Uh, he actually goes into a lot of uh, the reformers' opinions in, in early church history on this and then does some uh, uh, does some just exegetical work as well to explain, look, this is actually for the common good and there's good and there's bad and there's nuance. But I think that's a great book. Uh, Samuel Gray, For God and Profit, How Banking and Finance Can Serve the Common Good. That's great. Uh, David's that's a great. big promoter of Acton Institute and the, and the fellows within that as well. Um, I can't say that I've read all of their works, read a good amount, and I've always been very pleased with, with that group of people. Obviously, I'm, I'm biased and I think my boss is phenomenal and writes good stuff. So I'm yeah, honestly yeah, yeah. that. And there's a bunch of other podcasts out there. So if, if people wanted more of your boss's week by week commentary, there's um, a dividend cafe podcast. You can search for that. And then there's also, um, is it, is it with um, national review capital record that he does the, the which is a broader kind of uh, ideological look at um, uh, capital markets, um, a free and virtuous society is the tagline promoting a free and virtuous society. That, and you could uh, listen a bit more there. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, Drew, I'm sure they can use their intelligence and figure out how to do that. I'm not going to belabor that point. I just want to say to you, uh, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us today. One of our passions, one of my passions here as a pastor is to help Christians who really want to grow in their faith, really want to apply the Bible to the, the complex nitty gritty questions of life to do so. And you have really helped us to do that. And I have a pages and pages and pages of notes here that I now need to turn into a summary of this podcast to send out by email to our congregation when it goes out, which I will enjoy doing because um, I'm very sure that listening to this will benefit uh, everyone who does. So uh, Drew Dill of the Barnson Group, thank you very much indeed for being with us today. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for the backwards. See you soon. God bless you.